Well, church, our focal passage is in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. And then the attendant passage is going to be James chapter 4. So Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he, Christ, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, unto the Lord. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that we're going to consider this morning. We pray that you take it by the Holy Spirit and make application to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're discussing this issue of spiritual warfare, and I said a couple things last week just by way of reminder that spiritual warfare is the unrelenting, ongoing, never-ending battle against a mortally wounded foe. The devil has been mortally wounded by the cross, but he still has this rear guard action, this thrashing about. A mortally wounded enemy who tirelessly works to destroy God's people and God's church. So, mortally wounded, ongoing, unremitting battle. And the battle we fight has three elements, according to the Bible. There is the worldly system with this anti-God energy and anti-God message. That's just squarely opposed to the Bible. And then there is the indwelling sin that every person here has. Nobody will be done with sin till they see Christ face to face. So we have this ongoing. I said Romans 7 last week, the Apostle Paul calls out in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Because he says the good things I want to do, I don't always do. And the bad things I don't want to do, I sometimes do. So he says, wretched man that I am. And I believe that that is a description of a believer. The Apostle Paul is describing himself. So we fight the worldly system. We fight indwelling sin, and we fight the forces of evil or the devil, called variously places in the Bible, thrones and dominions and rulers or authorities. So, so we, we, we battle against these things. At the same time, I said that there's a continuum here, that on one end of the continuum are, are people, the vast majority of people we probably know who aren't believers, who, who say, you know, this whole issue of angels and demons, and th- th- that just reflects a pre-scientific mind. We're not there anymore. We're, we're, we're beyond that. that that's uh, pre-medieval the way of thinking. And I, I don't think I mentioned this last week, but I was reading an article about Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758 and wrote enough material to fill several libraries. And people have done various Ph.D projects on Jonathan Edwards and his theology, and the writer of this article said no one has ever done a PhD project on one of the issues that Edwards wrote about voluminously, and that is angels, and how angels support and defend and protect and minister to believers. And he went on, and his opinion was that one reason nobody has done that is because in academia, 
academic circles, there just isn't much credence given to the supernatural. So people have more or less discounted or turned a blind eye to that part of Edward's study. So, so that's a lot of people just lived there. I, mean, I remember years ago when I was a younger man, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson, and he had a standard line where he would say with great, he's a great, a gifted comedian, the devil made me do it, laughter, 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 laughter. Like you just discounted the devil. On the other hand, among believers, and these, some of these are very well-meaning people, there are people on the other end of the continuum who are fascinated and transfixed by spiritual issues. In that, they go way beyond what the Bible teaches, and they have direct revelations from God, and they say this and they say that, and, and you, you get out, when you get outside the Bible, you just kind of end up in a bad place. How's that for a general statement? But you, you do. I remember years ago reading a book somebody gave me, a well-meaning person gave me on spiritual warfare. And it was written by a physician, so he was bright, to a degree anyway. And uh, he, he said in his life he had had to, on various occasions, cast out the demon of fingernail biting. Well, you should laugh. I'm there, there's, that was, I just don't see that in the Bible. I, I just, I think you get squirrely and you get weird, and that's just why I could give you 500 examples. So our, our, our desire in this church, my desire is for us to be biblical, stay in the context of, of, of Scripture. And so as we think about this passage in James 4, the, the run-up to James 4 talks about if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. So one of the three elements, the world, and I just want to get this across, the, the world. So we can oftentimes be involved in being opposed to God because we're a friend of the world. James 4 verse 4 says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And you say, well, Okay, when I was a young man again, in evangelical circles, we had a term I don't hear much anymore. They'd say, don't do that. That is worldly. And it usually involved immorality or drinking to excess or something like that. So, so that's worldly. And, and there are certain things we say, well, that, that really is worldly. I'm, I was reading with fascination last few weeks, a few articles here and there about Johnny Depp who recently has become bankrupt because he's been spending $2 million a month um, on, on things. I'm going, how? I would like to try that for one month, but I don't know how you do it. And then I read the article that he and his wife of 15 months, Amber Heard, have divorced. And they talked about their wedding. They, they, they bought an island, and one of the Bahamian islands. And for, for every, listen, for every guest that came to the wedding, they spend an average of $112,000 per guest. So if your daughter's getting married and you think you're spending too much, believe me, you're not spending that much. And, and so you look at that and you go, you know, that, that's so extravagant. That's obviously out, out of bounds. That would be worldly. But my concern is I can call things worldly and not deal with issues in my heart. So I look at the book of James, and I think, what are some things that James calls worldly? And I go to chapter 2, verse 9, and where James says that, that if, if you show partiality to people who are wealthy while disparaging people who are poor, 
you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So if a wealthy person comes in and you say, here, sit at the head of the table, but a, a poor person comes, you say, stand in the corner, please don't bother us. James says, that's, that's worldly. Or the whole of chapter 3 is given over to the use of the tongue. And James says, with the same tongue, we sing the doxology, and with the same tongue, we berate people as we go to Sunday lunch. That's a rough translation. And he says, this should not be. Then he looks at the church, and he says in chapter 3, verse 14, he, he, says, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not wisdom. That is devilish, it is unspiritual, and it is earthly. So he says, obviously, there's some people in the church who harbored a jealous spirit, and they were selfishly ambitious. He said, that's worldly. That's worldly. And then he talks about people who were managers or people who were entrepreneurs, and they had men and women who worked underneath them, and they did not pay them the wages they had agreed upon, but pocketed the money. And he was just castigated them when it comes to issues of justice and truth. He says, behold, the wages, chapter 5, verse 4, of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You're not paying your bills. You're not taking care of the people that are working under your oversight. And so this whole issue of worldliness is addressed by James chapter 4. And the issue of worldliness is that the worldly system and its anti-God energy just flows underneath the doors and through the cracks of our windows. And the way we combat that is to run to the cross and to be people of the book. I don't know any other thing. And, and, and the thing that concerns me is that one reason I think spiritual warfare is so vitally important is that the worldly system is becoming more and more obvious and powerful, and it encroaches more and more and more in our life. I read something this week that I thought was absolutely unbelievable. I would never read it, and it was a magazine called Teen Vogue, and I'll stop there. But, but, the, but the article, I, I can't talk about the article in Nick's company. The article was so abrasively in your face dark that I thought, surely this could not be in a magazine like Teen Vogue, a well-known magazine. You can buy it at any, any, at any grocery store, any drugstore. It's just there. What formerly, just a few years ago, was whispered in the dark is now in Teen Vogue magazine. And I think of a poem by a man named Alexander Pope. I memorized part of it years ago. He says, it says vice is a monster a such frightful mien or carriage as to be hated needs to be seen. Yet seen too oft, we grow accustomed to its face. First we endure, then we pity, then we embrace. And I, I think of believers, I, I don't think we necessarily will embrace these things, but when it becomes part of the, 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 the verbiage and the news and the print media and the Internet among us, we have a tendency to endure and not weep over it. First we endure, then we pity, then we embrace. So I'm, I'm just, my, my plea is that we develop a Christian world and life view that deals with fighting against the forces of darkness. So spiritual warfare, classical spiritual warfare, how to live a resist the devil lifestyle. I'm just going to make three points this morning. Number one, 
in the text of James chapter 4. I need to realize that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the starting point. As believers, we say, well, God opposes the proud, the self-sufficient, and he gives grace. He gives his power and his grace to people who are humble. Now, listen to me. Humility is not something you have to work up, in my opinion. Humility is a matter of knowing your own heart and seeing your deficiencies. This is a little book. You saw it um, spoken of in the announcements. It's called Reengage. It's a wonderful program. It's 16 weeks uh, of marriage enrichment. And, and week number one is on the issue of love. What is love? It's a good place to start when you're married. But this is what it says on page seven. I thought this was really good. The point of lesson one is that our definition of love isn't big enough and that we don't have the ability to love our spouse as we should without God's help. Recognizing and admitting that you can't love as you should without God's help is the first step toward having the marriage for which you have always hoped. In other words, the starting point is God gives grace to the humble. There's an attendant article by a man named Paul David Tripp, and this is what he says. His 23 statements, statements about love, and number 23 is this. It's in the uh, worship guide. He said, love is admitting to yourself and to the other person and God that you are unable to be driven by Christ-centered, cross-centered love without God's providing, forgiving, rescuing, and delivering grace, close quote. So God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There are a number of people here, I just saw one in the hallway, who are getting married in the next few weeks. And these people are, they're, they're young and they're just fun to be around and they're so excited about getting married and, and they've been through our pre-marriage class here taught by some wonderful people and they think, you know, we're ready. And, and, and you know, we've kind of prepared them. You know what? They're not ready. They have no idea what they're getting into. In fact, I think in the open announcement, Will was making a statement that said, if you have trouble communicating or your marriage is in trouble or you want to make your marriage, a healthy marriage better, come to this class. And I thought, well, I'm in all three of those boats, sometimes the same day, you know. Or look at young, young couples here, and they're getting ready to have that first baby. And they're so excited, and they should be. Boy, it's good stuff. And they've read a couple of books on parenting. You know, they... Now, Usually your child needs to be fed every three hours. No problem. Uh, we can do that. We're young. And got to change diapers every 13 minutes. No problem. And you're going to be so bone-weary, tired, that everything is going to set you off. No problem. We'll take vitamins. I mean, you know, there are so many things in life that just don't you. And you listen, wherever you are, whatever you're struggling with, God gives grace to the humble. And so we run to the glory of the cross. We love to quote the 23rd Psalm. Today's July the 23rd, so I, this morning I got up and read Psalm 23 and Psalm 53 and 83, and I'll read the others. I just, that's the way I cover the Psalms every month, okay? 23, 53, 83, okay. So the 23rd Psalm, the most famous Psalm in the Bible, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down, my green pasture, leaves me beside the still waters, he restores my soul. We love that song. We should. 
The Lord is my shepherd. We love John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. Verse 3, Christ says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Christ calls me by name, and he goes before me. It's a beautiful concept. Verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he'll go in and out and find pasture. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And we love, you know, he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. Our ladies are doing a study this, this summer entitled Finding I Am, and Sarah was showing me some of the stuff this week. And on page 7, he talks about us being sheep, and he gives five characteristics of sheep. Sheep are defenseless, prone to wander, they have poor eyesight, they follow other sheep without thinking, and they're stubborn. That's me. We're sheep. Sheep are defenseless, prone to wander, they have poor eyesight, and they follow other sheep without thinking, and they are stubborn. We're sheep. We're sheep. You read the 23rd Psalms, that's me. John 10, that is me. Sheep. And that's why C.S. Lewis in his monumental book that called Mere Christianity wrote a whole chapter entitled The Great Sin, and it's on the issue of uh, pride. And he says this in part, he says, unchastity and anger and greed and drunkenness and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice, and it is a complete anti-God state of mind. And he says later, the devil laughs at uh, see, he is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting you up in the dictatorship of pride, just as he would be quite content to give you a skin ration if he was allowed to in return to give you cancer. Pride is spiritual cancer. You see, and pride is being, being proud of being better than somebody else or better looking than or more talented or more wealthy. This, this whole issue, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Resist him. Now, in 1662, something was released called the Book of Common Prayer. And it's read in many Anglican worship services. Uh, this particular prayer is read frequently. Listen to it. O God, the Father of heaven, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. The congregation responds, O God, the Father of heaven, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. Now, let's say you're having an inner dialogue, and you can freeze it. Or if you're in a corner, you can have a, a very soft soliloquy, but inner dialogue. God, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. You go, well, Lord, miserable sinners, that's a strong term. I mean, that really is. I mean, why not... Um, why not God have mercy upon us or upon me, uh, someone who's not enlightened in a study area where he hasn't delved into with his mind? I'm just uninformed. How about God have mercy on me, an uninformed individual? 
and, and then the, the, the next line is, is oh, oh God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. And we were to respond, oh God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. And you have this inner dialogue saying, well, okay, maybe I'm not what I should be, but I'm a whole lot better than, than Ted and Mark and David and Brad. They really are miserable sinners. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite there. The next line, oh, oh God, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, have mercy upon us, what? Okay, you're getting it, miserable sinners. And then you respond. But, but, but what you could be thinking internally is, stand up and say, well, you know, you look around and say, if people could really see me, I've been going to a personal trainer, and I've got a six-pack, and I'm looking really good, really good. Or these people don't look that good. Do they realize the shirt I'm wearing is Italian silk, handmade, imported from Genoa? I've got it together, and they don't. See, we, do you realize you're a miserable sinner? Do, do you realize that? Do you realize that apart from the grace of God, you can't pull it off? Do you realize how pride has manifestations in so many areas? I'll, I'll just tell you the truth. So after this service is over and I say amen, people will leave. They'll get in their cars. But as they leave, I will be greeting people in the hall. This is what people say to me every week. That was a great sermon. Wow, what a blessing. Sometimes I say, no, not even close. But sometimes I think, I'll confess to you, yeah, I nailed it today. Man, I got that one down. That's just pride. I mean, really, apart from the Holy Spirit, everything is said and done here will fall on deaf ears. So I, the, the, the beginning point of spiritual warfare is submitting myself or understand that God gives grace to the humble. If I'm going to fight the devil, I've got to say, I need thee every hour. I've got to come to Christ and say, I can't pull this off. I've got to look at my friends, my kids, my wife, and say, I, I can't begin to love them with the love of Christ unless God, by the power of his, the Holy Spirit, empowers me to do so. And so self-sufficiency and arrogance, and, and it, it, just, it just destroys. So before I can start even resisting, there, there are a couple of building blocks. The first is I've got to understand and realize with, with great reality that I need the empowering grace of Christ every, every day. And number two, he says this. The passage of James says, God gives grace to the humble. He says this, submit yourselves unto the Lord. It means come under the authority of. Submit yourselves unto the Lord. So I, first of all, I realize that I submit. I submit to God, His Word, and I'm going to suggest, and His people. I come under the authority of the Word. Jesus says in Matthew 11, He says, come to me all you're weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Well, how? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, see, if, if I'm to be someone who resists the devil, I've got to walk under the authority of the spoken word of Christ, the yoke. See, everyone here will submit to some ultimate system or philosophy or worldview. 
And, and, and I'm going to vote for the worldview of the eternal Son of God who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for my sin and rose victorious over death and ascended to the right hand of the Father on high and has poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. I'm going to vote for that worldview. For, I want to be under the yoke of Christ. But I want to suggest to you that the, 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 the submission comes not only to His Word, but, but to the people of God in the local church. I want, you, I want you to get this. This is really, really important. And I, I, I don't want to misstate it, but I want to get it across. So Ephesians 5 has a passage that talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart unto the Lord. You know, so so you're, you're a worshiper. You're, you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're not filled with wine and dissipation, and you worship. And then it says, and, and you give thanks to the Father for all things because this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. You're a thankful person. You're a worshiping person and a thankful person. And then verse 21 says this. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Talking to the church at large. So you submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, verse 5, understand that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is. And he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. But he says before that, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Likewise, you that are younger, be subject to the elders. There's the word again, submissive. So he says, in the local church, you are to be submissive to the elders. And we're not sure if it's talking about an age group or an office. But, but, but there, there's this thing of mutual submission where you listen to one another. Hebrews 13 uses the same word. And verse 17, uh, this says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I, I really think, wow. Here's what I think it means. Uh, God has given us leaders who teach the Word, and as the Word is taught historically, biblically, confessionally, we come under the authority of the Word. And we walk in union, in unison, as the Word is taught. Therefore, join a local church. These are letters to local churches. Be in fellowship with one another in a local church. I mean, don't just visit. Join. Get involved in, in groups where people know you well enough to speak to you and to pray with you and maybe even to correct you as they should. It's vitally important See, when I worship on the Lord's Day, when I sing hymns, I am doing spiritual warfare. I am driving out the forces of darkness. When I get up on Sunday and I don't feel like coming to church, but it's the Lord's Day, and I'm committed to honoring the Lord on the Lord's Day, and I come here and I walk among people, and I sing, and I listen to the Word, and, and, and I, I drink coffee in the Welcome Center, and, I, and I, I, I see these families seeking, these singles seeking to honor the Lord, I leave always, always deeply encouraged. 
I need the body of Christ. The Bible says that we are to mutually submit to one another. So I'm to listen to you. You're to listen to me. And then it says there are leaders who speak the word. You listen to them. Be involved in the body of Christ. Get actively involved. So when I, when I come on the Lord's Day, I'm doing spiritual warfare. When I'm in a small group, I'm doing spiritual warfare. I've, I've told this to the elders a few, a few weeks ago, because it just struck me. I'm, I've, got, I've got seven volumes of the letters of John Calvin. The letters and pamphlets of John Calvin. Just seven volumes. Um, really good stuff. And Calvin, of course, died in 1564. He was 54 years old. 54. Anyway, so I'm in this one volume I'm reading, this, and it just absolutely, I, I was thunderstruck by it. He says three times in about 80 pages, he's writing these letters, and he says to three different people, he says, I, I've come to a place in my life where I, I'm, I'm having a, a difficult time making a decision that's outside of Scripture. And I've come to the point of placing myself under the authority of the elders of my church. In other words, I've asked these men to speak into this life issue. And didn't really say what it was. But I've come to the place of, it's outside of the Bible. So Calvin went praying about, you know, whether he should rob banks. You don't do that. Don't steal, okay? But he said, I've come under the, that. That is so foreign to my ears that I'm, I had to read it four times. And yet, I, I think that's biblical. Here's how it works, I think. So, if, if you're praying about being married, and you want to be married, the Bible says to marry in the Lord. That's it. But, but if you're trying to discern if your personality and your goals and your aspirations fit with the other person, kind of, sort of, I, I would want to get the counsel of godly people who are walking the path of marriage. Or if I'm getting out of graduate school and I've got a chance to live in Montana or Minnesota or New Jersey, I'd want to go to some godly people. First of all, I just knock off New Jersey. Just, that's it. Just kidding. I met some people in New Jersey earlier. I'm just having fun with you. So, so you go to them and you say, here's the decision we're trying to make. There's, there's no verse in the Bible that says go to Montana or Minnesota, New Jersey. And they say, well, let's think out loud. Is there a vibrant church in the area where you can nurture yourself, or if you're married, to nurture your marriage, or if you have children, to nurture your children? Are there good schools? Is there, is there a good school to go to? Are, is there this and that? How about the, talk to somebody that's got a financial mind, not me. Is there an economic base? What's the state income tax like? What's it going to do in the future? What, what are the prog, what are the pro, what's the possibility of, of progress in your, you do all these things, and then you make a decision. I would never want to make a key decision in my life unless I had a prayer covering from godly people in my local church. That's me. Never. So I'm reading a book. Let me, I'll just say this. I, I was with a, uh, in a prayer meeting the day with a man that I really respect and care for. And just in the prayer time, there were six of us praying. And he said, Lord, I thank you that there are people in this church who tell me when I'm wrong. Just, I thought. I, I take that for granted. And then the next thought is, am I open to being corrected? Because I need you guys. I need the church. I need the brethren. 
God is a communitarian God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's made us for relationship. Are there people in your life who can tell you when you're wrong? There's a little study we did years ago, and part of it was written by a woman named Nancy DeMoss, and it's in the bulletin. It says, says this. It says, yep, or worship God. I'm sorry. It says, proud people focus on the failure of others. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Secondly, proud people have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but through their own with a telescope. Broken people are compassionate. They can forgive much because they know how much they have been forgiven. Listen to this one. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit. They recognize their need for others. I read a book recently by a man named uh, Thomas Ricks. It's entitled Winston Churchill and George Orwell and the Fight for Freedom. Uh, His thesis is that during World War II, these two men who never met, Winston Churchill, obviously the Prime Minister of England, but George Orwell, who at one time had been a crypto-communist and gone to Spain and fought in the Spanish Civil War, and but, but once he'd been exposed to Stalinism and its ilk, became vehemently anti-communist. And so during the war, he kept waving the flags and be careful about participating and listening to the Soviets in 1945. Orwell, as many of you read in high school, wrote a book entitled... Uh, Animal Farm, and then later he wrote a book entitled 1984, which really beat down the Stalinist system, and really there was a death threat on his head for years after writing that book, 1984. But this book is about these two men. And on page 235, near the end of the book, he says this, that George Orwell never went to America and never wanted to go to America. George Orwell did not like Americans. And he said he had been repelled by the gargantuan size and the conspicuous consumption of our culture and the swaggering and smugness of the Americans he knew. Most of all, he was alienated by America's determined self-centered individualism. And he wrote in a book entitled The Line of the Unicorn, this quote, quote, all the culture that is most truly native in England centers around things which even when they are communal are not official that are dear to my heart. He says, the pub is communal. You sit around drinking, playing darts or whatever with a group of men. He says, the football matches are communal. I didn't know that so recently, but you go to football matches in England and soccer and they, they sing the whole time. Oh, and they just sing the whole time. It's pretty amazing. He says that the, the back gardens are communal. The fireside is communal. Even, he says, having the afternoon cup of tea is never done in isolation. It's always done with another person or a group, close quote. And he went on to say that but the American self-image is all about the lone individual. This is all their books, whether it's the Deerslayer or the Virginian or their B-grade movies are all about the individual. And I thought about it. You remember the, the movie Shane? I think it's 1952. You've never seen Shane, Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd, he's the man. But Shane does his thing and he drives off what? In the distance by himself. The Lone Ranger. Lone Ranger. Alone. And so he's, Orwell said, and I think he's got some credence here. He goes, this article, the man went on and said that he, even. Uh, he says he even criticized Clint Eastwood in High Plains Drifter. I think he went too far there. 
Do not criticize Clint Eastwood, please. But anyway, my whole thought is, listen, we are raised in a culture that prizes an individual. 1976, one of the greatest movies ever produced. When the Academy Award that year for the best picture, what was it? Rocky. It was so good. Rocky 15 wasn't that good, but Rocky 1 was good. Okay. Rocky. Rocky Balboa. The Italian stallion. I mean, we have to fight against individualism. We need the body of Christ. If I'm to do spiritual warfare, I've got to be in submission to brothers and sisters in the Lord. I've got to listen to people. I've got to receive from them. So, so that's spiritual warfare. And, and then, and only then, he says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So very quickly, I'm going to talk to you about three ways we resist. Three ways we resist. Um, so again, foundation, God gives grace to the humble. Submit to the Lord. God's word and his people. And, and then Ephesians chapter 4. How do we resist? Ephesians 4 is talking about um, the new life in Christ. And this is what it says. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let, let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Very interesting text. So, so there is a righteous anger, but it doesn't lead you to sin. Be angry and do not sin. And here's, here's the issue. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry. In other words, deal with your sin quickly. Don't let, don't let anger fester. Don't let unforgiveness fester. Don't let elitism fester. Don't let a sense of your priorities being diminished fester. Deal with it. Repent very quickly. So one way I, I fight in spiritual warfare is I, I am very careful to not let sin linger. Because if I do, you give the devil a foothold or an opportunity. The second way we resist reading the Scripture is 1 Peter chapter 5. Starting verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him. Knowing that, and here's where, knowing that, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal, eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, so if I'm to resist the devil, according to this passage, I've got to realize that there are brothers and sisters throughout the world who are undergoing egregious, horrible sufferings. And see, when, when I remember that and I think about that, then it, 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 it kind of takes away the thunder of my being peevish and concerned about myself only and being vindictive or being callous or being stiff-hearted, whatever. World Watch just released the list of the most 
persecuted nations in the world. I'm going to read you the first 10. And in these countries, our brothers and sisters are undergoing persecution. They're being thrown out of their homes. Their property is being seized. They're being put to death because they follow Jesus. That's it. Number one on the list is North Korea. North Korea. Number two, Somalia. Three, Afghanistan. Four, Pakistan. Five, Sudan. Six, Syria. Seven, Iraq. Eight, Iran. Nine, Yemen. Ten, Eritrea. The Horn of Africa. Top ten. Many of us remember very well what happened two years ago when the ISIS thugs marched out 21 Libyan believers on the beach in orange jumpsuits and beheaded them. 21 men who went to their death because they would not deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. When I think about that, I go, God, forgive me for being half-hearted. Forgive me for being uncaring. Forgive me for not praying. God, forgive me. It, it takes away really the, the silliness. This past Palm Sunday in the nation of Egypt, Egypt, 10% of Egypt is Christian or more. They're professing Christian, a broad part of the population. This past Palm Sunday in the nation of Egypt, two churches were bombed. Over 50 on that day were killed. Many were in critical condition. I don't know how many have died since then. 80-some were wounded. And the Guardian, the newspaper in England, released a chilling story that said that there was a video feed with, with audio, and it was showed the church, and you could hear in the background on Palm Sunday, the church was rehearsing the songs they would sing for worship on this great celebration Sunday when they celebrated Jesus going into Jerusalem. And then there was an explosion, and the same voices that had been talking about the coming Messiah King were screaming out in horror and pain. And the children who had been outside holding palm fronds, now there was blood covering the palm fronds. On the watch list, India is very dear to our hearts. We have a number of people in our church who have worked and are working in India. India, as far as persecution of believers, is now number 15. Broke into the list very high because in India right now, there's a very militant Islamic government led by the BJP that are systematically denying Christians their rights, their privileges, universities, whatever. Kenya. Kenya is 18 on the list. Kenya is made up of 82% professing Christians by background. 48% of, of Kenya would say they're evangelical. It's much higher than our country. But there's a militant Islamic group in the northern part of Kenya that are murdering Christians every day. And I, so, so, brothers and sisters, I read that and I go, God, God, forgive me. And then he goes on and says, one way we uh, fight the, the devil is to realize that, that this life is a vapor. He says, there's going to be a day very soon, very, 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 very soon when God will establish, confirm, and, and, and restore us in heaven. Heaven is coming very quickly for some of us. Very quickly. And then the last passage I'll read is, is, is resisting the devil is in this monumental struggle recorded in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, it talks about this titanic battle in the heavens. And it says this, and we'll start in verse 9. Listen. 
And, and, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How do we resist and conquer? By the blood of the Lamb, by the work of Jesus, and the worship of Jesus, and the empowering of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and by the word of our testimony. Our testimony is strong and clear and good, and we love not our lives even unto death. That's how we resist. So, so we resist because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and we submit to God's word and his people, and we resist the devil. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, we are your sheep. Those who claim to be Christ followers, we're sheep. We're defenseless. We're easily misled. We have poor eyesight. We're sheep but we have a glorious shepherd. So my, my prayer is God protect and nurture and carry us along. And I, I pray, the Lord, we would resist the devil and the forces of evil as we have the foundational truth of knowing you give grace to the humble. So Lord, we admit that we're sheep and also that we, are, we submit to your word and we submit to brothers and sisters. So God, we are all fighting with issues. And, and I pray that you'd give us the mind to wage warfare with the Word of God and the people of God as we bow before you in worship. God, break down strongholds. Forgive me of indifference. Forgive me of, of, of lethargy. Forgive me of willful arrogance and many other issues. But God, work in us. Work in us. Let, us. let us resist and go forward. Let us resist as we share the gospel. Let us realize that, that what we're doing right now in worship is resisting the devil. That when we're with each other in fellowship and we're praying together and listening, we are resisting the devil. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for men and women who live it out and love us and care for us. Thank you for giving us the spontaneity to know that none of us here have it all together. Nobody, nobody, nobody. And we desperately need the empowering grace of Christ and the warmth and the joy and the instruction that comes in being in the body of Christ. So blessed be your name, Lord. As we go through these teachings, help us to understand that there is a warfare for our well-being, this unremitting, ongoing, never-ending. And let us walk in that way of obedience to you, Lord. Bless us, O oh God. In Jesus' name.